In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, be with us. Anoint this time together. Work through each of us so that we may learn what you want us to learn, grow in the way you want us to grow. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we'll begin with the Bible once again. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I wanted to start with that because it reminds us of our ultimate goal, which is union with God, and that the kingdom of God is within us, is the way a lot of the spiritual authors interpret that phrase, uh, amidst you, within us. Um, That we find God primarily here, I mean, present among us, but also present within us uh, by our divine adoption. And that our goal is friendship with him uh, and, and all that entails. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the goal for a second before we talk about today's topic, which is conversion, generally, let Jesus direct you. Uh, and that, that brings with it the theme of growth more than any specific conversion. It's just a question of how do we grow over time? What are the different stages of growth over time? And how does that apply? How does our prayer change over time, etc.? But before we get into the details, I want us to at least aspire a little bit to the goal. And uh, I'm going to take for a guide for a little bit here at the beginning, Garagou Lagrange, Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange. Uh, he authored this book, The Three Conversions in the Spiritual Life. It's been printed by Tan. It's in the public domain. Um, we've talked about him briefly in the past because... He was one of the key members who, who helped the debate about whether infused contemplation was a normal part of the growth of grace in a person's life, of the divine life in a person's life, or, or whether it was extraordinary. He was the one that argued that it was ordinary, that we was to be expected, and uh, that debate ended with the doctrinal definition of the universal call to holiness in, John, in the Lumen Gentium chapter 5. About seven pages, it's well worth taking a look at that little chapter. Uh, and how everyone is called to holiness. Everyone's called to a deep life of the Spirit. And, and that's part of our goal, that great spiritual friendship with God in prayer, but also bringing all the gifts of the Spirit to play in all of our works and acts as well. So there's that real active side of it all, too. We'll talk more about this later in the course, especially in the last section. But for right now, I just want to inspire us with a few words about um, what he calls the divine awakening, following John of the Cross. And he says here, quoting John of the Cross, how gentle and loving is your awakening, O word and spouse, in the center and depths of my soul. 
wherein alone, secretly and in silence, you dwell as its Lord. Commenting briefly on this, Gergu Lagrange says that this is the great delight of this awakening, to know the creatures through God, and not God through creatures, to know the effects through the cause, and not the cause through the effects. This brings one other aspect of our great goal, which is to see God in all things, to see God in all people. So, so often we use the things of this world as an analogy to talk about God. And, and that's where you see, uh, see him through the effects. But he says, we can then change our lens where we just see God in all things. So we start to see him in ourselves. We start to see him at work through us as his instrument in our works. But then we also see him through other people in their works. And we see him ultimately, hopefully, uh, in all the good things around us. And appreciate the whole life, our whole lives, a little bit more fully because of it. So that's a hint at our goal. Like I said, we'll talk more about that in the final section, uh, the final lesson. The other thing about this is that he's really great in this little 100-page book of giving a good traditional explanation of what are called the three um, ways of the spiritual life, the three ages of the spiritual life. And he says, he argues, I think, convincingly that there's a conversion before each of them. So let's go through that very quickly because it, it gives us a sense of the spiritual life as it plays out over time, and so that we can then understand different pieces of advice as they fit to different periods of, of our lives. The first conversion is just kind of into Christianity, right? You leave behind the old self and the old ways, the immoral self where you put yourself as the center of everything. And you decide to enter a church or revert to a church and follow God's ways and make God primary in your life. And so you become what's called a beginner in the spiritual life. I wouldn't get too tied up with where you are in the scheme. It's not really about tracking that. It's more about categorizing information. Uh, but nonetheless, and we could kind of spiral through these in deeper ways over time. And so the beginner loves God, is happy to go to church on Sunday, for example, and put God in the center of his life in that sense. Um, but he's still got some worldliness left in him. He still got, has some purification yet to do. Uh, and generally speaking, the spiritual authors talk about a mercenary love. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena is pretty clear about this. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday, God, if you'll do this for me, right? Uh, and that's the kind of like, I'll do it if I get paid, uh, mercenary love. Uh, we could talk about the prosperity gospel, right? You know, it's based on this kind of principle. Um, then there comes a time when that kind of fails, and so the person is pushed to find God more in prayer, or his rewards in God more in prayer, uh, and he or she seeks God more in the spiritual life. And so this conversion towards seeking God more in that way. And they say that you enter the second stage, which is kind of the intermediate stage um, where you're seeking God. So they say sometimes the first one's called the purgative way because you're still purging yourself of kind of the worldly mentality. 
and the second stage, the illuminative way, because this one's really defined by seeking information about God, especially about spirituality. So when you see someone enter this stage, uh, she starts to just read like mad, right? All of a sudden, they're coming back to spiritual direction. They're like, I read 400 pages since we last talked. And you're like, that's great. You know, and it is great. Uh, but it's, it's really marked by that notion of, of intense study. And then there come um, difficulties which push the person usually to appreciate God more just for being gone and less about the spiritual gifts. That doesn't mean that there aren't good spiritual gifts to be had. It's just that God, if he wants to give in the fullest measure possible, needs to purify us so that we're ready to receive that as a gift and be able to use it well, uh, without, say, attributing it to ourselves, uh, without getting puffed up by it. And it requires a little bit of purification to do so. There are some technical terms that go with this conversion. Uh, one technical term is aridity. It's generally the term we use for when your prayer is hard. So arid, it's dry. It's, you don't get as much consolation out of it as you once did. Uh, so this is the notion of aridity. The opposite term is consolation. So consolation is that general term for when you have those more peak moments of prayer. Prayer seems easy. There seems to be a little bit of inspiration in your Lectio Divina. Uh, God seems to really be helping, helping out during your, your works. You know, things become just very easy when consolation is present. And let's take a look a little bit at uh, Garigou Lagrange on this, this transition here. In what does this crisis essentially consist? He argues that there's a crisis in between each of these stages uh, that pushes the person uh, to the next step. The soul, in the soul being deprived, not only of sensible consolations, but of its spiritual lights on the mysteries of salvation, of its ardent desires, of that facility in action, in preaching and in teaching, in which it had felt a secret pride and complacency, and by reason of which it had been inclined to set itself above others. This is the period of extreme aridity, not only as regards the senses, but as regards the spirit, in prayer and the recitation of the office. Skipping forward just a little bit. Generally during this period, great difficulties occur in connection with the apostolate. Detractions, failures, checks. It will often happen that the apostle is made to suffer calumnies and ingratitude, even from those souls to whom he has done much good, so that he may thus be brought to love them more exclusively in God and for God's sake. Uh, hence, this crisis or passive purification of the spirit is like a mystical death. It is the death of the old man according to the words of St. Paul. I took those from pages 91 and 92. This is sometimes called a dark night of the spirit. The first conversion between beginners and intermediates was the dark night of the senses senses being kind of all of that stuff associated with the world. This one, all the stuff, purification of the spirit. Uh, I had a professor, Luke Buckles in Rome, who said that this, this second conversion, or this third conversion really, can have either just an interior aspect or, as Garrigou Lagrange is explaining, also an exterior aspect to it. Uh, he, he talks about stormy dark nights 
where things happen in your life as well. Uh, and sometimes it's just a transition in life happens as well uh, that prompts it. As, and we could talk about all those things that happen to kind of push persons through different situations in life. Um, maybe an illness, maybe uh, difficulty at work or in the family. Um, but there are a number of different things that can happen that prompt a person to seek a little bit more deeply. It's very notable that he calls this second convert or this third conversion a passive purification. And it's very notable for our work to understand that. And this, this is really why we're talking about this in this context. This is not something you can program. This is something God programs and you get through. And the, the, the important part is that like, nothing you can really do will, will really, as far as asceticism, get you through this more quickly. Um, perhaps you can learn to yield yourself up to the process a little bit more easily. And we're going to talk about that and how a humble confidence gets you to learn the lessons of this passive purification more, more quickly. In particular, um, with regard to our work, I think it's very important to realize that this self-reliance we've been talking about, um, technically this semi-Pelagianism we've been talking about, is what we have to give up to go into the third stage. And the only way you get through giving up that, that spiritual self-reliance is by this humble confidence of letting God really do what he wants to do in life, in each of us. Uh, and so maybe going into it we, with a little bit of this notion of trying to accept God with a humble confidence um, will help us to move more efficiently through it. Uh, but the, the main point is that a lot of the advice in this book, which applies throughout the spiritual life, applies in great order in this, at this moment, uh, because that's what is most needed. As the person moves into the third stage, what's called the unitive stage, people begin to have the gifts of the Spirit flow much more fully in their prayer lives and sometimes in their active lives. It, it plays out differently in different souls and, and their own inclinations and what God's doing in that soul. Uh, and we see the gifts of the Spirit, or the fruits of the Spirit, sorry, become more fully uh, there, present in a person. Uh, and the gifts of peace, for example. The gifts of being at peace in any situation. And you heard in Garrigou Lagrange's explanation, again, seeing God even at work in all this turmoil. Uh, seeing God really more present in everything, even the really difficult things. So that's a little brief introduction to growth in the spiritual life, and I'm happy to answer more questions about that uh, as we go. But for a moment, I want to change topics uh, in a related topic of asceticism. So asceticism is generally that training that we undertake so as to grow. So in the spiritual life, you have on the one side um, prayer and all the interior life, and on a related side, asceticism, how you, pure, you, you allow purification to happen in your life or you actively take on purification in your life so as to make that next step in growth. There are two sides of purification, active and passive. 
Uh, it is Lent. A lot of us at the start of Lent identify an obsessive attachment that's been dragging us down, taking our attention away from what we really want it to be on, uh, taking some of our energy away from where we really want to direct it. And we establish that's the thing I want to remove or purify a little bit more. And we do, which tends to be that we take that away uh, from our lives so as to purify our attachment to it a little bit. Or we do some extra work uh, sometimes to grow a virtue as well. Basic act of asceticism is finding that liberation of growing virtues and of removing vices. And the focus there is on the liberation of that. Not being tied down to whatever that is that's, that's again, taking your attention and taking your energy. Now, I really like, as a general book on asceticism, uh, I like this little book called Addiction and Grace by Dr. Gerald May. Um, he's a psychiatrist. He's a, uh, he works in addiction, and he definitely has the lens that most things come from addiction of one way or another, either attachment addiction or aversion addiction of fleeing from something. Um, he's really good. He's also really good at how grace is so much needed to liberate that higher power that they talk about in 12-step programs is needed for the liberation, whatever that is. He's also very open about how he thinks himself and everyone else has eight addictions or more at play in their life. So if you're looking for a basic book, I think that's a good start for, for this category. Um, I want to talk a little bit about passive asceticism. Any asceticism, and especially active asceticism, has to be ordered at growing in charity. Everything is ordered at growing in charity. Even the humble confidence is about growing in charity. Uh, but if your asceticism isn't making you more humble or more charitable, it's not helping. If it's, if it's perfective in its status, it's really distracting you from growth. And that's worth recognizing. The whole aspect of passive purification is that sometimes we need to not be in control of the process because it becomes too much about perfective of our own status. And that's why God has to be in charge of the process. Um, so passive asceticism is about surrendering to God and allowing him to do what he wants to do in our lives. Uh, and allowing, seeing him at work in the difficulties of our lives. And, um, and that's that's going to be so key to, to learning the lessons that he's teaching us on his program and not on ours. Um, Marmion has a great quote on this, and he says that um, if we just let God do his work in us, it would be much better than whatever mortifications we're trying to work by our own selves. Um, and in a very Theresean kind of thought, uh, St. Therese related to her, he says, we ought not to strive to dazzle God by our perfection, but rather to draw down his mercy by the confession of our weakness. So much of that passive um, purification is about accepting our powerlessness and turning to grace. It's about letting God be God, using that phrase. Um, 
And that's key, as you saw in the later developments of the spiritual life, but I think it's key at many aspects of the spiritual life. And, and on that point, you know, there are different schools of asceticism and different ways of doing it. We always know in the monastery when the novices are reading the Desert Fathers, they become very rigorous for a while. <laughs> they're, all about, they're all about how great they're fasting, and they'll let you know it, and they, they let you know your, their progress on it. It's so annoying. Um, it's got its place. I mean, active asceticism is very, I want to highlight, is very important. You're not going to remove these vices if you don't do some of this purification, and you actively do it sometimes, too. But there are approaches that are perhaps healthier and more efficient and approaches that are less healthy and less efficient. And I think today, uh, it's really important to try to find what works best for us. Um, so I'm turning to um, someone by the name of uh, Father Marie Eugène. Uh, if you're looking for that on the internet, it's, it's spelled like Eugene. But Marie Eugène, um, he was wonderful because he was a commentator on Carmelite spirituality who himself was beatified, so who could live it himself. So that's why I really like his take on some of these topics. And, and he's got three basic ideas about asceticism, which is that it needs to be absolute. And, and right away, we're kind of surprised by that, but he says you have to have that great goal of being a saint. You have to have that great goal of wanting to be liberated and wanting the Spirit to work fully in your lives, opening up the space for the Spirit to work fully in your life. So have the great goal. Um, then he says, adapted. And this is key because when you read an old work, you need to update it for today. You need to adapt it to today. If you're listening to someone before electricity talking about keeping vigil, that person may be talking about being up until 10 o'clock at night. In our time of electricity, we may be keeping vigil, perhaps not the way they were, but we may be keeping vigil every night. So you can't just directly apply their words and suddenly mean like, that means I should be up until 1 a.m. Because that's, that's not an appropriate way to adapt an old textbook, an old book to today. We live in a different culture. And we have, to, we have to have an asceticism for our time and our culture. Uh, and that, that does, it does bring the difficulty of interpretation and how to ad, adapt to today. But we have to be willing to undertake that difficulty of interpretation. Uh, so again, those desert fathers, some of them, uh, St. John Cashin thought, you know, if you go out into the desert and you drink as little water as possible, you will be holy. And that is not proper medical science these days. We know a lot more about how the fact that that's not just so helpful in general. Uh, and he was trying his best. He was a trailblazer. They were all trailblazers. But we also have now, say, at that time, 1,600 more years of practice on this and of adapting this. And this is where uh, Marie Eugène is fantastic because I think he pinpoints just the asceticism for our day. And here are his words on page 93 of I Want to See God, uh, first volume of his two-volume work on Carmelite spirituality. 
In order to combat a generalized pride, St. Therese of Lisieux constructs a spirituality of humility, her way of spiritual childhood. To remain a child, to cultivate carefully in oneself the awareness of one's littleness and trusting weakness, to rejoice in one's poverty, to display it gladly before God as an appeal to his mercy. Such, in her opinion, is the most proper attitude to attract God's glance and the plenitude of his transforming and consuming love. Really, to acquire this attitude and to keep it demands a complete immolation. And so St. Therese requires of her disciples an energy no less persevering, a gift no less absolute than do the, perform the reformers of Carmel themselves. She is of their race and of their blood, their authentic daughter, the faithful interpreter of their thought. It pleases us to think that St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross would not have given for our time an interpretation of the principles of spirituality other than the one they gave for all time, adapted to our special needs. Marie Eugen. I think I, I'm in agreement with him. I think St. Therese is the great master for our times of how to adapt uh, asceticism, especially, uh, but I think Christianity generally, to our times with that spiritual childhood, that humility of just kind of holding God by the hand and walking with him where he wants to walk. Uh, and uh, Francis de Sales, St. Francis de Sales was great about that same image of gathering blackberries as you walk with the Father hand by hand. And it's true to stay with a humble confidence if you let the passive purification play out, as Therese was very generous to do. And she would even say, you increase this the way you want to. I couldn't increase it because I goof up. I'm too weak. You give me the grace. You increase the offering as you want. And let's just walk hand by hand. And that became a huge offering for her by the end of her life. And I think that would be a much healthier way than going out of your way to emaciate yourself or whatever it is. Again, there's always great uh, roles for active asceticism. I'm sure my doctor would love me to eat more salads. Um, but uh, I think St. Therese gives us that, that very healthy, helpful way of approaching this. And I think Marmion was in complete agreement with her on that topic. So, I think I'm going to pause there. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the whole realm of spiritual growth. We've talked a little bit about how the humble confidence we're talking about in this course has to do uh, with the most liberation by um, letting God do his program in our lives and not trying to do our own program in, his life, in, in our lives. Uh, and how that gets us through that, that third conversion most efficiently to purify the self-reliance that gets in the way. And then we talked about asceticism, active and passive, with an example, I think, of how to adapt it to our times. I need to give you the third aspect of Marie Eugen's uh, program, which is um, progressive. So take one step at a time. If you have that great goal, and you're going to trust that God's going to get you there, all you really have to do is find out what he's asking today for your one little next step. And then you'll trust that you get there. So that gives a little overview of those two topics. I'm happy to uh, take some questions. Hopefully you have questions, and we'll see where we go. Mike.
So asceticism, the, the root there is like a training, right? A training of oneself. Uh, so if you can think of like a, an athlete undergoing exercise and training, uh, that's kind of this training of in the virtues and training of removing the vices. That's, that would be a general approach to it. And then it has these two sides, active and passive. Father Augustine. Is it at least poss theoretically possible to skip the dark nights? Is it theoretically possible to skip the dark night uh, without the crisis. I, I think that the spiritual, I think that the, the, the consensus, it seems, of the saints is that it's not. You know, uh, can God, but, but, but I think there's the caveat, like, could God have this, like, child saint that he just overwhelms with grace? I mean, there's that possibility. You've got to allow for it. But I think you have to say that the, the general experience the, uh, of what the saints are talking about as a growth in this. David. Yeah, so David asks, you know, you say that it's not a progression, yet it also sounds very much like a progression. And then you also highlight that yet uh, St. Teresa, let's say in the Seven Mansions, says you go and back and forth, right? Yeah. I think the second one's more of your interpretive key on that one, David. So, there are different types of prayer associated primarily with each of these. They say, for example, beginners tend to pray a lot more with vocal prayers, with set prayers, um, and kind of very much follow what the book says. And um, those in the intermediate stage tend more in the direction of meditation, uh, of really kind of thinking about God, doing a lot of study on God. Uh, those in the third stage, and Gergou Lagrange uses this nice image, uh, it's like, for him, he said, it's like setting up all that study was like putting up the scaffolding in the cathedral and cleaning it up. Cathedrals always have scaffolding in them. But he said the third stage is when you take the scaffolding down and you just admire the, the beauty of the cathedral. Uh, so that, that matches that kind of basic notion of meditation is like painting the painting that you're doing and contemplation is like sitting back and just admiring the painting that's been, been there. Um, of course, when we get to the higher levels of infused contemplation, say described in St. Teresa of Avila, we're talking about much higher levels of, of God doing kind of things in a person's prayer life as well. Um, and so the interpretive key there is just because you're meditating right now, don't get too stuck at what that means for it all, right? St. Teresa was very clear, for example, when she said, she, right before she wrote about the seventh mansion, uh, I think she said she hadn't been there for years, right? And she had been in the fourth mansion for quite some time doing meditation is kind of the nod there, right? And she said, the day before I had to write about it, God placed me back into it so I could write about it. Uh, so then you see her prayer going back and forth. Um, so again, people get too tied up with, oh, but I'm not where am I, or I'm not, I'm not moving fast enough, or whatever it is. And, and, and that's not exactly helpful for a person either. So it's helpful then you realize, okay, well, even St. Teresa's going back and forth in her prayer, uh, and that's kind of that iteration, right? Can we skip the, no, no, that's a good question. Can we skip the dark night of the soul and just get to the great mystic experiences? Uh, I think, the, again, generally they say no. Um, but again, the mystic, the thing about the word mystic, because I think you apply it, 
in a very kind of uh, true. Well, you've read a lot of these books, I know. So like, you apply it in the way most of the books do. The debate that uh, Gary Lagrange, I think, won, at least his biographer thinks won, um, was in Christian Perfection and Contemplation. So this is about that deeper level of infused contemplation that they're talking about. And he argued that um, the normal growth of grace from that we receive in baptism, that divine organism in our life that we receive, in a sense, um, can flourish all to the point of infused contemplation. So the debate, some people said, no, that has to be extraordinary. You have to put that with visions and miracles. Like God can do it, but it's truly not part of the normal path of a Christian. Uh, and, and, and again, he, he, I think, convincingly saw it as a gift of uh, wisdom as far as the gifts of the Spirit to kind of draw back, um, to sit back and look at the painting, but also then to allow, allow God to kind of seize that that will, intellect, and memory, and, and draw back even a little bit more in, that, in those gifts, uh, of those mystic gifts, if you want to still use the word, I, th I think it's appropriate, uh, is part of the normal thing of what anyone can expect. But then to, to separate that from visions as perfectly acceptable coming from God, but truly of an extraordinary character, the way, say, a miracle is acceptable, but of an extraordinary character that you can't expect to happen. While I'm on it, um, God kind of prompted me to bring books today, so you get more books. If you don't search well for the three conversions in the spiritual life, you'll get Garagulagranja's three ages of the spiritual life. It's a little bit more of an undertaking. Um, and I wouldn't, I, as you can see, I haven't broken the spines too much on those. If you were ever up to something of a, those are his lectures for a license in spiritual theology at the Ange. Um, if you're ever up for something like that, I think the guy that came before him, Juan Aaron Taro, I like his big, chunky commentaries a lot more. Uh, he's got these beautiful quotes from the saints that are like this big at the bottom, of uh, uh, footnotes from quotes of the saints at, that are like that big at the bottom of every page. And the reason I have 400 footnotes in my book is because I really liked what he did. I really liked being like, I really liked saying like, I want you to see this wonderful quote that didn't make it to the text. But if you really want to know, there's another two or three people who say this and have beautiful things to say about it, as there are sometimes 30. Um, but to be able to find things. If you ever want just an undergrad level uh, of any of these topics, Jordan Allman's Spiritual Theology is like the undergrad level uh, of all these topics, one by one and, and more, uh, than what we cover in this basic course. Um, again, on a more advanced level, if you've been reading for a while, you know, like there are people of different handicaps in this room, so I have to give different books for different, different handicaps. Um, if you want to take the next step with a big work of spiritual theology, uh, Marie Eugene's books are really good, his two-volume book. His two book. Um, and again, you've got a person who can live it as well as write about it. So that's, that's I think, a really cool part of a commentator on the whole thing. <laughs> is there a, there's the 100-page, uh, is there an under-undergrad book? The Three Conversions of the Spiritual Life is what I use with the kids. Um, it, is, it is 100 pages, so it's short. Gary Lagrange would not meet your level of... Um, 
rhetoric or interesting stories, Father Augustine. You, you may not find him the most fascinating of reads, but very technical and precise <laughs> and short, at least in this work. Um, Jacques, Jacques Philippe, actually, if you want to go with what is like great for what I would say a parishioner level, just entry, I want to learn something about spiritual, spirituality, I think the works of Jacques Philippe are excellent. Um, they're very short. They're usually about 100 pages each, um, big type and everything. Um, the, the foundation for them is very strong. He almost never cites the foundation for them. But as someone who studied spiritual, uh, spiritual theology, I can see the underpinnings behind his work. And, and his, his underpinnings are very, very solid. Uh, and he's able to convey it in a very simple and easy to, to digest uh, way of, of, of reading it. So his works, the complete works of Jacques Philippe, I would just say any of them, pick them up. Uh, he's got one on the gifts of the spirit. Uh, he's got one on prayer. Uh, the interior freedom is just that kind of go-to book about anyone that needs to forgive someone and receive inner peace about forgiving someone. Uh, that's a very powerful book. Um, but so Jacques Philippe is excellent and available in every Catholic uh, bookstore you got. You'll have all the works there. I think he's still living uh, with a community of Beatitudes in southern France, I think. Excellent question. So um, Fulton asks, how do we engage in any of this without becoming puffed up, essentially, right? Uh, St. John Cashin says that vanity is like an onion, where the more you peel one, uh, of the bol one of the rings off, you find another and another and another still to peel. Um, and so generally, in, in this course, we're talking about that difficulty of vainglory, of vanity, getting in the way of, that, of that, that allowing God to take over. So uh, we talk about um, Marmion recommending uh, a humble confidence, which is based on John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches, you can do nothing without me. Um, we, the saints often use the phrase, but tweak it to say that I am nothing without you in the sense that I can't, if you're going to work through my life and I'm just your instrument, I can't uniquely attribute it to myself. It may be real in my life that you're working in my life, and there's a paradox, but I can't uniquely attribute it to, our, to myself. So we can say, come Holy Spirit, help me, or more intensely, I'm nothing without you, please do this through me. And then at the end say, and thanks be to God for doing that. And I think that's one of those, those, those dispositions, or those two are the dispositions that help us to seek his help, rather than just say, I've got this. Seek his help. And then you become more attuned to thanking him for his help. And it's okay to be like, and he's doing it in my life, right? Uh, I use the explanation of, if I were theoretically interviewing for a, go a job, it would be absurd for me to say, I can't teach 8th graders. I've been teaching 8th graders for years. I know how to teach 8th graders. I could screw up. There's a whole different question there, right? Um, but it's, it would be truly false humility to be like, I don't know if I had the qualifications to do that. Um, hopefully God does it with me if I do it and when I do it. Um, and the same thing, in your life there will be established growth, uh, virtues, right? And, and, but then you could say, thanks be to God, he's working through me and he's doing these things through me. 
No, I think that's a great question, David. You, David asks, um, how do we choose asceticism, right, in a way that's most helpful? Um, I think that, that Gerard May is pretty good about this. So whatever's really too, truly taking your attention and your energy away from something you, you would much more likely want to give it to, that's really something that's starting to be an obsessive attachment that's encroaching on your life. That would be the first place I would look, right? Is there something that's truly distracting me from where I want to be? Um, you know, so is, is it a good thing to use a phone? Sure. Is three hours of YouTube too much? Maybe. Is three hours of YouTube taking your attention and your energy away from family or friends, a good book, some prayer? Maybe. You see where it, that, that starts to be the, the level of analysis, I, I think. These things aren't bad, it's just, is there a higher good that you want and you want more of? Uh, and if so, why is the lower good getting in the way? I think generally speaking with any of this, there's a question of discernment. So usually sitting down with an accountability partner, with a spiritual director, and saying honestly, like, well, this is where I am, this is what I'm working on. And you're right, David, sometimes you could say, like, this other thing in my life is what really needs the attention right now. And I can't work on X, Y, and Z at the moment. And, and that's a fair assessment sometimes. And that's where that third person, like that, the outside opinion can help. Because they may say, yeah, I think you're right. You don't really have the time to work on X, Y, and Z right now. Um, I think, again, generally this disposition of trying to see what God's doing for his program in your life is part of that discernment. Uh, trying to be attentive and asking about that next step in spiritual direction uh, or in prayer is part of that discernment. Um, those are some initial ideas, at least on the active side of asceticism. On the passive side of asceticism, uh, I think it's worth, I guess, asking yourself if you're going through a dark night. And the rules may get a little different if you're going through a dark night, right? If you're carrying the weight of a dark night, you maybe don't need to work on A, B, and C. Because you're already carrying something, right? If your life is already arid and stormy, A, B, and C are less priorities at that moment. Um, there's that. But I think also, and I'm going to move your, your question a little bit further, how do you sometimes choose the right guide for that moment? Uh, like, for example, speaking of a dark night, John of the Cross is a severe trainer. You know, he is, he is not the trainer for the average person. And if you ever read him, start with the good stuff, like the, the um, flame, flame of, uh, oh no, I can't think of it at the moment. It'll come to me. Um, the spiritual flame, something along those lines. The living flame of love. Um, Start there with the good stuff, but his other stuff is severe, and his principles are severe. And, and he's almost like that trainer like to finish a high-level athlete off. Uh, he's like that trainer for that low-handicap golfer. And don't go to him if you're a 20-handicap golfer. And, and that's worth knowing, because some people are like, oh, I want to jump into John of the Cross. And, and I'd be like, uh, read a commentary first, or <laughs> do something else. Um, I'd put people off a long time on that, unless... They really seemed ready for it. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you listen to your counsel? 
Um, because it's a lot about prayer. Uh, it's less so about, I mean, you're right, it, it's the background. Uh, it's one of the background documents behind these basic commentaries on the spiritual life. Um, it's interesting, I didn't pick it off the shelf today. I guess I stuck, st stayed closer to the commentators, because usually that's the entryway for a lot of people before they get to the primary texts. Um, but yeah, St. Teresa of Avila is approachable. So she, she's approachable for, for most anyone. She's sometimes going to inspire you much further than you're able to go at the moment, but she is, a, she is at least approachable. Um, <coughs> Steve? What handicap is Cloud of Unknowing? The Cloud of Unknowing, again, mostly focused on prayer, uh, I think is a wonderful text. I think there would be, my professors in Rome would have a disagreement, actually. Um, I think a lot of people put the cloud in the unknowing and associate it with that third way because of its truly apophatic approach. Sorry for the technical terms, but it seeks God in darkness, right? It says that all those things we can know about God are, are fall short. And so you can come closer to God through the will of just loving God in the darkness. Um, and, and that's really that kind of sitting back with God kind of contemplation. Uh, and sometimes designed for that deeper allowing of infused contemplation to happen, right? To, to put a cir circumstance in place where it could more easily happen. And for that reason, a lot of people put it into the third way primarily, or recommend the book at that time. But I think that the, I, I in a cup one, maybe Professor Ed Rowe, um, probably does think that it's got a broader application earlier for people who are inclined towards that type of prayer. Um, so I don't necessarily, I guess I would, put it, I, I would put it this way. If you pick it up and it really starts to speak to you, I think you can keep going. If you pick it up and it seems severe and off-putting, I think you put it down. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come Holy Spirit, help us to desire union with you and all the asceticism we need to do to get there, active and passive. Help us to discern our next steps towards that in a way that's adapted and progressive on our own weakness at this moment, but trusting that you will get us there for you desire it and all this liberation for us and you desire deep friendship with us and let us be led by you on this path. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.